0: We tend to think of caste as, you know, this very sturdy, strong wall that needs to be broken or a ceiling that needs to be hit on. But it is not that sturdy. It's a very flexible sort of a mesh. All that caste marginalized people are trying to do are, you know, just starting to poke holes in this very flexible sort of a system. And there might be some holes that we may have poked at one place and in another place those holes would close up. So we are constantly fighting this battle of trying to move across and come back. And once again, it all closes. So that is why caste is so adaptable. Caste will marry colonialism. Caste will have babies with Christianity. Caste will perfectly date capitalism. It is also a very easy, simple sort of a categorization. It is so simple that it is so effective, which is why it is so resilient. No, It's that resilient stain that wouldn't go off. <laughs>
1: That was Christina Dhanraj, our guest for today. Christina is a writer and a consultant for women and minority-led initiatives focusing on social justice, self-determination and collaborative models of scholarship. She was the co-founder of the Dalit History Month Project and is currently an advisor for Smashboard, a mental health initiative based on intersectional feminism.
2: Aditi, what did you think of what we just heard?
1: I'll be honest, I belong to the 1% of the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. I am the sort of, I'm the Karen of Indian women, right? And by the way, I have heard that there is also a term for the Karens, you know, the upper caste, upper class Indian women. We're called the Shalus. The (laughs) Shalus. Which I think is a hilarious term. And I would be, I mean, I'm mortified whenever someone calls me that. But we're called the Shalus because we're so precocious and we, you know, employ our upper caste lady tears and the, oh, my God, I'm horrified. (laughs) Every time that we are faced with any kind of tragedy or any kind of injustice we see in the world, because also we've led these like, you know, privileged and sheltered lives. And so I am self-confessed Shalu.
2: You are. You know, and I have to say, I have lived in India for so long and I still struggle with totally understanding the full extent and breadth of caste. My closest prism that I can understand it through is in the U.S. we have race is similar to caste and we have similarly entrenched systemic issues that are really at the pit of so much of the things that we struggle with as a society. And similarly, as a white woman, white American woman, I occupy a huge amount of privilege in that space. So, but I'm wondering, can you tell us when did you first really understand your privilege in this space?
1: You know, it's so horrifying to say, but I think my learning of caste may honestly be on the same level as yours because one of the sneakiest things that caste or the caste system has done is to be, you know, as Christina says, is to be so all-pervasive that you don't even realize it exists. The lady who brought us up, the domestic worker who brought us up, who brought me up personally, she was more than a mother to me. You know, she, while my mother was out there working, she was the one that sort of, took care of me. And I remember I was in boarding school and in every boarding school setup, they have what is a local guardian. And so my dad had recommended one of his friends to be my local guardian in the same city in Pune. I was in boarding school in Pune. And so my mother and Stella auntie went to talk to her, to tell her that, oh, you know what, this is Aditi, will you be her local guardian and everything. And when we got there, the lady served my mom some water in a glass glass. And then as Stellanti came to take the second glass of water, she went, No, no, no. One second, she's getting your glass. And I didn't even realize it. And my mother walked out. <laughs> my mother just walked out. She's like, Oh, she doesn't know how to respect anybody. Yeah. She just simply walked out. And I didn't understand what it was about during that time. But, you know, as I grew older, I realized, oh my God, these are things that have always been around. But it made me realize how all pervasive and sort of omnipresent caste is. You carry it in your last name, you carry it in the way you speak, in the language you speak, in the food you eat. I mean, it's everywhere. I think one
2: thing that Christina talks about that really resonated with me is this concept of how leaning in can be destructive in some way, this idea of leaning in, because she speaks about as a woman a Dalit woman in a corporate space, she is leaning, you know, she is leaning in. she's trying to do everything that she possibly can to advance and get ahead. But the fact is that idea of leaning in puts all of the onus on the individual and she exists in an entire social structure that is not set up to give her that advanced place that is not set up to already assume that that she has a seat at the table, that she is going to be able to do it. So it's not just the onus on the individual, but it's that we exist in this incredible system that works in so many different ways for so many people. Today, we are so excited to have Christina Danraj with us. And today, because we
1: have two Christina's, Aditi, how are we going to deal with two Christina's? <laughs> you know, the cooler Christina is going to be called Miss Dhanraj, and the other Christina is going to be called Lil C., Like the vanilla ice of podcasting. You better rap at some point in this episode. Okay, Christina?
2: (laughs) Yes, yes. And I think that that is totally well-founded. And I am definitely the little, I am the little C in this discussion for sure. (laughs) Happily, happily. And today we're going to be speaking with Miss Danraj a bit about her own work. We're looking at the overall picture of workforce discrimination and challenges amongst India's Dalit women and also how this translates into different types of spaces.
1: So, Ms. Dhanraj, I started following you on Twitter after you established and created the Dalit History Month in April. And of course, putting aside the need to have a history and the need to know where you come from, why April? Why did you decide that April will be Dalit History Month? And what was the sentiment and ethos behind the founding of Dalit History Month?
0: Thanks so much for having me, Christina and Aditi. I think this is a brilliant opportunity to have a conversation that's not always seen together, which is workforce and Dalit women. And thanks so much for that question about Dalit History Month, Aditi. One of the most important things that we have to note here is that this was a collaborative project, so I wasn't the only person who was involved in it. So in late 2014, Tainmoli sandararajan who's currently the executive director of Equality Labs, reached out to me with the idea of Dalit History Month. I was very taken by it from the start given that it was inspired by Black History Month. And as a Dalit woman, I have benefited greatly from the work of Black women writers and activists. Also, as someone who was a strategy consultant at that time, the prospect of gathering and synthesizing data appealed to me greatly. So I just, you know, ran with uh, Mori's idea And so we started off as a small group of three Dalit women who began to work on the concept, the research and the design and in early 2015, it became a slightly larger collective and all of them were Dalit women or Dalit queer people. And they all took part in writing, translation, illustration, as well as designation. And we eventually launched it on social media. And why April is because Dalit communities, particularly who are in Maharashtra, I hear tend to celebrate a number of things during the month of April. And as you already know, Dr. B.R. Ambedkar's birthday is on the 14th of April. So, April is a very special month, uh, not just for communities, Dalit communities, but also it's a special month because. One of our, you know, leaders was born in that month. And so it just fit rightly within the way we see Dalit history. The project as such was essentially imagined to be a product of collaborative scholarship, which I mentioned earlier. And so I'm not the founder, but the co-founder currently, it is a community project. It is not held by one person or even a group of people. It is held by the entire community. And the community has run with it in ways that we never quite imagined. And it's been seven years and people have received it in very different ways. And to be able to see how this has been engaged with, not just within India, but globally has been Extremely heartening and extremely beautiful, an experience to witness.
2: Thank you so much. It's a fascinating story to hear, and I appreciate that idea that it was started collectively.
1: I can't believe that this is so non Savarna feminism of you to like, you know, want to share the credit with everybody. It's weird to, I mean, at least from the school of activism that I've seen around, everyone's like, yes, I did it. I did it. I woke up and had the idea for equal rights. It was me. (laughs) I had a dream. And you're like, I don't think so. It wasn't just you. But uh, this is incredible to know. And, you know, this podcast is structured around, of course, well, I would say slightly depressing fact that, you know, the participation of Indian women in the workforce has sort of fallen drastically and dramatically, you know, over the past five years and is projected to fall even more. You know, we wanted to understand from you, where does, even just in terms of participation, where do Dalit women fit into these spaces, just in terms of percentages and numbers? Okay.
0: So, first off, we need to understand that there is no comprehensive data that can give us any indication of how many Dalit people or how many Dalit women or how many Dalit queer people are employed in India and elsewhere. There is no comprehensive data on this. So most of the data that is available is very much research based. It would be some survey that was conducted by some company somewhere. It would be researchers who are interested in this question who would go about culling that data. Right now, it's kind of scattered and there is nothing that is comprehensively telling us It is so much of a percentage of Dalit women that are present, say, within corporate workspaces in India, within private Indian companies in India or within multinational corporations in India, right, or even elsewhere for that matter. I am aware of an Oxfam India report that was released in 2019 and they have, tried to understand how caste diversity plays out in the media. And one of the snippets from that is of the 121 newsroom leadership positions across newspapers, TV, news channels, news websites, and magazines, 106 are occupied by journalists from the upper castes. And none of those belong to scheduled castes or scheduled tribes. That itself is quite staggering, right? And earlier on, this is not too recent a study, but it's still a safe enough number to extrapolate to 2022 as well, is that 94% of top jobs in India's private sector are held by Brahmins and Baniyas, right? And a study that was conducted by the Center of Social Studies in Gujarat showed that of the top 1,000 companies listed in the Indian stock exchanges for 2010, caste-based diversity was completely non-existent. And nearly 65% of corporate board members were from upper caste groups. And I bet that if you were to relaunch a similar survey currently, like right now, these numbers would not be very different. In fact, you know, there would hardly be any changes to these percentages. We would still find that 95 to 96% of top jobs and boardrooms are very much dominated by upper castes in India, as well as globally, wherever there is a significant South Asian population. And we've seen this time and again, you know, who are the South Asian CEOs? I mean, most of them, all of them are upper caste. And uh, every time a news of such a leadership, it's social media. We have people from upper caste locations saying, yay, go Brahmin. Yay, go Bania!" And that speaks to it, right? I mean, people who've been able to climb the corporate ladder or climb, you know, organizational ladders within India and
2: elsewhere have always and continue to be people from upper caste locations. So you mentioned before about the data that it exists in the public sector. What do you think of the idea of implementing some of those things in the private sector? Is that something that needs to happen?
0: Absolutely. I think that is, and I think this tends to become a fairly controversial sort of a a topic, right? Almost always. I remember this was sometime in 2015, I had for the first time written an article about what it means to be a dalit woman in corporate india and it sort of went viral and for a long time i refused to even look at the comments because it was so triggering and so casteist and what was shocking to me even as i was you know going through some of these responses much later was that has no one ever spoken about this before like has no one ever i mean are we so rare that, you know, this article could cause this kind of a response, this kind of a feedback from people. And what I noticed was that although I was not talking about affirmative action in that article, I was simply only talking about some very, very basic things about what it means to be Dalit and how does casteism translate into so-called modern sophisticated spaces and how should gender discourses around corporate feminism must change. I mean, these were really basic stuff and I wasn't even touching upon affirmative action, but people interpreted even that relaying of that experience as me demanding for affirmative action. And what I noticed is that they were so hell-bent against even a remote Inkling, like, what if this experience translates into an actual quota in the private sector? Like, that was the fear that was propelling some of these responses from people. And over the last few years, I mean, since I wrote that article to where I am today, I fully and completely believe, unless we have affirmative action policies within the private sector, we are not going to be able to see any change as far as caste-affected, caste-marginalized populations are concerned. And it's not that controversial if you really think about it because companies in the U.S. have been implementing this for racialized populations. Uh, companies in Canada does this for First Nations. Companies in Australia are doing this very similar sort of affirmative action policies. Indian companies itself, as well as multinational corporations in India, do that for women for LGBTIQA populations, they do it for disabled populations, they are doing it for age-affected populations. I mean, this is a system that has been in place and it has taken different diverse formats across the globe. And yet somehow when it comes to caste, it becomes extremely controversial, especially within the Indian context. Right, and so it begs the question: Like, what is it that is really propelling this rebellious energy in upper caste people, in Savarna located people, that they would say, like, there's no way we are going to allow Dalits into this workspace. There's no way we're going to have a quota system, right? The answer to that question, Christina, is yes, absolutely. I think the private sector must think of formal and informal ways of affirmative action for caste-affected, caste-marginalized populations within their spaces.
1: You know, Miss, I've read that article and I've also read the comments below. And it is mind-boggling because you know what? Like, I can get that on some level, the insecurity, like having reservations in a public sector job, where you're like, oh, this is the government's, you know, this is our tax money that's funding these organizations and therefore, no, no, whatever this fake idea of merit that we have going around. But in a private company, what's your problem? Like, if there's anyone that has more money than us, we're like, you know, my baap, you just tell us. You just tell us. We'll fight to death for you. And you are like, what is up with you people? I think it is more than just that loyalty
0: to corporations. I think it comes down to space. Any space. It comes down to a territorial need. For dominating spaces, any spaces. And this we see constantly happening within Indian and South Asian contexts. You open up any kind of space. It initially started off with, you know, the public sector space, which slowly moved into the Indian private sector space. And then now it's multinational corporate spaces. And eventually we had nonprofit spaces, we have activist spaces, we have different kinds of spaces, right? It is the same. Upper caste people, regardless of what space you open, they want to dominate that. They claim that as their territory. And so Dalits, when they move into these spaces, they are constantly seen as being out of place. It's not like Dalits are not in these establishments, right? But if they are, they are doing very menial work, they are doing the cooking and the cleaning and the waste management and they're doing so essentially you have the caste system that is being replicated in these spaces who are the ones who are doing the cleaning in hospitals cleaning bathrooms in high end offices and high end hotels and restaurants beauty parlors in beauty salons who are the ones who are doing that all of the women so it's not so much about you know, upper caste people feeling that loyalty towards their employers rather they thinking that, you know, this is my space. I should be the one having power. And I should determine who gets to occupy this space and in what capacity. And one of my fears is that if and when companies and companies must start talking about caste equity, again, we will have, you know, upper caste and Cast privileged people coming into that space and saying, we know all about it, we are the ones who are going to design and decide what these caste diversity work streams are going to look like. And I don't want that to happen. So if there is a DNI professional or if there is a DNI related person who's listening to this podcast and they should know that they have to employ, they have to give that opportunity to cast marginalized and cast excluded people. Because that lived experience is vital when you're designing work streams, when you're designing DNI strategies as far as caste is concerned.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of what you're saying strikes me as it's such a difficult mantle to always take on. And I know that you've experienced, This as well, when you spoke about your one article that you put up there and having to take all of this backlash on in the comments, you know, when we look at workplaces and workspaces online and offline, we're starting to have more dialogues about mental health. And I was wondering if you can share with us a bit about how your own experience with taking this on and how it has impacted you.
0: Absolutely. I think corporates of today have started to, you know, get on this bandwagon of mental health. And I'm very happy to see that. But I'm also extremely suspicious because I don't know how they would, you know, take that and twist it into something that it is not. I truly believe that employers, whether it is, you know, tech companies or I don't want to speak so much about public sector and come to that in a minute because both of my parents were public sector employees and the issues that they face are markedly different from the issues that, you know, me and my sister faced or my colleagues and my peers are facing these days. So within the private sector, whether it's Indian companies or multinational corporations, I think these spaces were not ever designed. For things to be easy, we're never designed for a good life, you know, for a healthy life, for a peaceful life. The very systems that are in place, you know, around these spaces, inside these spaces, thrive on the ill health of people. They are not going to be able to make money out of it. They are not going to be able to monetize it. So the very structures that are in place are first off, extremely, extremely skewed. Right. And so most of these initiatives that are starting are trying to counter these structures in some way or the other. But these structures are so powerful that, you know, any sort of new discourse, they would take it and then they would completely twist it. You know, So essentially, this is how the system has been designed. The second is that for women in particular, including Dalit women, On top of our respective historical marginalizations, right? Regardless of the magnitude and the degree with which we have faced both individually and collectively, modern workplaces have also become hubs of toxicity, additional toxicity in many ways, right? And I keep going back to what's being repeatedly told to us, specifically women, and what we have also come to believe as the ultimate truth, which is be more visible, do more networking, get your name on a flagship project, lean in, do more. There is just so much emphasis on the self. There's just so much emphasis on a individual to do a whole bunch of things, and which is humanly impossible, right? And I think this lean-in philosophy has been drilled into our heads so much that right now it almost seems impossible to convince the leadership to think otherwise. Take Women's Day. I mean, what happens during these days? I mean, either they are, you know, one side of it is to, you know, give roses and poetry and all of that's just BS. And I'm not even talking about that. The other side is to have these long sessions, lunch and learns, where you are essentially telling what you're telling women to be better. You're telling women to speak more. You're telling women to be more visible. Like what is stopping you from doing it? There is something, you know, internally, I've had so many mass gaslighting sessions. I've been part of so many mass gaslighting sessions where women leaders and, you know, all kinds of leaders would come to you and then say, I think the internal battle is a bigger battle to fight than the external battle. What internal battle are you talking about? This is this I'm I'm already at my brim, you know. There is historical marginalization. There is, you know, a whole bunch of trauma that is on the outside that I'm dealing with on an everyday basis. And then I come into this workspace and you're constantly telling me you're not visible enough, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. You know, and this is a way for corporates and this is a way for establishments to completely shrug off their responsibility, completely shirk of accountability and place the whole thing on the individual saying it's because of you. There is something that you are not doing right or you're not doing or you're doing something that is not what we exactly expect, which is what is impeding your growth. And I find that really funny because there is only so much that an individual can do, can operate in, right? If the space itself is so toxic to to start with. So, I mean, I'm not surprised that the mental health of working women has gone down so badly. There's, of course, COVID and I mean, COVID, a pandemic is, of course, something that, you know, most of us have witnessed the first time in our lifetime. But, you know, that is to be expected if you're going to have a life. But a catastrophe cannot be the only reason why the mental health of women is breaking down. Like, you know, there is no infrastructure, solid infrastructure for women to fall back on, for women to depend on. And which is why even a catastrophe can completely break
1: things for them. G and Ms. Dhanraj, what is the role of an employer? And I'm speaking across sectors, public sector, and we've had several interviews and I personally have been schooled about how, you know, whenever I'm always like, hey, you know, so like, what can we do to fit in better? And people are like, stop it. Stop it. Okay. Nobody needs to fit in better. Right. Like, you know, workspaces need to do better. Absolutely. And so, as an employer in a formal workspace and an informal workspace, what are the systems that we can currently, I mean, it scares me to say like we should collect data because that's what? we haven't even done that yeah but what are the systems we can put into place employee facing like from the end of you know hiring more women hiring more dalit women hiring more queer people what are the systems we can put into place as employers
0: yeah no that's such an important question to ask aditi and also like the answer to that is so long and so complicated no because of course the solutions will vary depending upon the sector that we are talking about, right? But in general, if I were to keep Dalit women at the center of it, or not just Dalit women, but also caste excluded women at the center of that question, I'd say that first of all, employers must recognize that caste is an issue. I think that recognition and that acknowledgement hasn't happened yet and hasn't happened extensively enough. And so we definitely need to have that acknowledgement in place. Right. It is precisely because of caste that we don't have enough of us in these so-called modern workplaces. And for the few of us who are present, it is precisely because of caste that these workplaces have become so incredibly unsafe, mentally, physically sexually in many different ways and we haven't even gotten into caste-based sexual abuse that happens within workplaces so and i think that demands a podcast for itself but essentially you know this is the first thing that employers must do the second thing i think this is the and i'm only talking about the most basic things and the most immediate things that employers can do is understand that caste is both a risk and an opportunity right? There is undeniable evidence that caste hurts corporations. The Kent RO Systems ad was, are you allowing your mate to knead atta dough by hand? And then it says, her hands may be infected. And then it goes on to say, health and purity, Kent atta maker and bread maker. This was the ad that Kent RO Systems had put out. There are similar advertisements that Shopper Stop has done, Facebook has done. When I was growing up, I remember this ad for teeth whitening, where, you know, there was this palace where, you know, people would be climbing on these parapet walls and they would like smile and their teeth would essentially be the light that would lit up the pathway. I mean, that is so terrible. Like, can you imagine that they are? Using people's bodies to, you know, I mean, where all of this has its basis in caste. And the fact that, you know, these ads could actually be made, these marketing campaigns can actually be conceived and get out of, you know, quality control without anyone saying, hey, that is so problematic, shows that there are no caste marginalized people in their teens who are in a position of decision making. So, yeah, I mean, that's the second thing that, you know, companies must realize, Aditi, is that they have to see caste as a huge reputational risk, as a huge risk otherwise too, as well as an opportunity because caste diversity is good for business as diversity is good for business. Having Dalit people in your workforces, recruiting more of them is going to be great for business, right? And Thirdly, of course, again, these are very basic points. There are long-ended, long-winded strategies that need to be put in place. But essentially, to see Dalit women and other caste-excluded women as a protected category, even within the contours of you know, gender diversity. Women aren't a monolith. Gender diversity need to be... The discourse on corporate feminism need to be expanded. We have to look at it from the lens of caste instead of harping on the very old ancient ways of lean and philosophy and you know breaking the glass ceiling sort of you know discourses i mean all of this need to absolutely be done away with
2: so mr danraj you just named some of the things that corporate nonprofit different sectors of leadership need to take into account I'm also curious for our listeners and for us, what are things that we can do in our own individual everyday lives to be better, to help out?
0: Yeah, absolutely. There, I want to make a differentiation between, you know, who are audiences? Like, you know, if it's going to be cast marginalized, cast excluded people, then I essentially want them to understand that they are intrinsically a lot more worth than they are made to believe they are. And I think I wish somebody had told that to me. I wish I was told that multiple times because the world, the rest of the world was telling me otherwise, right? And there's only so much, there was only so much that the people who loved me, who loved me could do to assure me that I'm precious and I'm rare and I'm important and I'm valued because the voices and the loudness of the world kind of drowned theirs. Right? And as a Dalit woman who is darker skinned, who comes from a lower middle class location, and who did not at that time have the confidence to even speak in English, there was just a whole bunch of barriers that was holding me back. And workplaces that I was part of, and I'm sure a lot of my peers are part of, which are a lot more discriminatory in nature tend to harp on these very vulnerabilities to tell us that we are not good enough. And so I want caste marginalized, caste excluded women and caste excluded poor people to understand that they are so worthy, and that they are so precious and that they are so important for this world, for themselves, for people who are listening to them, who are being inspired by them. This moment is ours. And we are going to grab it and we are going to seize it and we are going to do more and we're gonna shake up the world. I want this message to get across to my people. The second thing is the audience that are not caste excluded, the audience that are sitting in these plush caste, caste enabled locations and positions is that be an ally like you would be as a friend. An ally to me is a friend, an allyship essentially is about committed, involved, engaged friendship. What that means practically is as far as workforces are concerned, as far as participation, work participation is concerned, there is immense value in you being able to connect Dalit people in your networks with people of importance, with people who are currently holding power. It could be as simple as... You know, suggesting someone who's Dalit that you know is in, you know, to a job opening or providing that reference, you know, because we need to understand that by default, nobody thinks about a Dalit person because the picture that we have in mind of a successful, efficient person almost always is white or upper caste because this is what has been fed to us. And so there needs to be active intervention in your minds to think differently, to think counter to that. So let me play this out. If someone comes to you and says, hey, you know what, there is an opening, there is a writing opportunity, there is something, could you suggest someone? Who's the first person that comes to your mind? Your friend, your relative, someone in your circle? Are any of them Dalit? Most likely not. Because you've been conditioned to grow in that culture, to make friends with people in high places and people in high places are almost always upper caste. So there is an intervention that needs to happen internally for you to be able to help Dalit people who are progressing, who are trying to make their ways, trying to make inroads into these spaces, trying to essentially interact with, you know, unfamiliar spaces and it takes a huge toll on our mental health to be able to you know these uh, so-called parties and so-called engagement sessions and you know a whole bunch of things I mean some of these are very natural for a whole lot of people it's not natural for any of us because we we don't have that experience simply put So what is it that you can do to make people feel welcomed, to make people, to include people, right? It's not just about diversity. It's also about inclusion. It's also about accessibility, a whole bunch of things. I think it's important that we think on those lines rather than just have really bulleted out points as to, you know, what is it that
1: I can do? That's so interesting that you said that because it is crazy that caste is basically the basis for these two things, I was a little mind blown. I was a little mind blown because I think I'm, I've also, I mean, of course, I'm privileged enough that I am not see and all that nonsense. But I mean, then to have these very international corporate concepts interact with something as ancient as, you know, this old form of discrimination was quite mind blowing.
0: 100%, 100% agree with what you just said, Aditi. It is an old and an ancient form of discrimination, but it is also extremely adaptable. You know, that's why I keep saying that I think it was during the discussion that we had about writing with fire, a film that was made on Dalit women journalists, that we tend to think of caste as, you know, this very sturdy, strong wall that needs to be broken, you know? or a ceiling that needs to be hit on. But it is not that sturdy, if you think about it. It's a very flexible sort of a mesh, you know? And all that we are trying to do, all that, you know, caste excluded and caste marginalized people are trying to do, you know, just starting to poke holes in this very flexible sort of a system. And there might be some holes that we may have poked at one place, and in another place, those holes would close up you know so we are constantly fighting this battle of trying to move across and come back in and, and once again it all closes that is why caste is so adaptable caste will marry colonialism caste will have babies with with christianity caste will have you know caste will perfectly date capitalism it will do all of these things because it is that adaptable it is also a very easy simple sort of a categorization it is so simple that it is so effective which is why it is so resilient No, it's that resilient
2: stain that wouldn't go off. Christina Dunraj thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to learn from you and hear about your experience we just greatly appreciate it and I think that there's a lot that all of us can take away from this conversation so thank you for giving us your time.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I think it was a fantastic conversation. I love talking to both of you. Thank you so much for this platform, for this opportunity. And I hope you get to have more women like me on the show and uh, have more diverse
1: conversations. For more information on the podcast, please visit womeninlabor.com or search for Women in Labour on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. Women in Labour is made by Executive producers Christina McGilvery, Aditi Mittal, and Laura Quinn. Head of production May Miriam Thomas. Senior producer Divita Oberoi. Chief of staff Priya Kapoor. Marketing director Mania Sachdeva. American Center team Joy King, Purva Jassi, Min Jong Bei, and Radhika Sungar. Junior producer Niketana Kamal. Junior editor Yash Hirve, mix engineer Karthik Kulkarni. This podcast is generously supported by a grant from the American Center, New Delhi. The opinions, findings and conclusions are those of women in labor and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State.